So it's important when we're running a team that we deliver consistent leadership, that, that the behavior that we're exhibiting, the type of leadership that we're sharing and showing are consistent for the, the purpose of our team should know exactly what to expect. There should not be surprises. They should understand if I have a problem and I bring it to you, this is exactly what's going to happen. Hopefully it's a good thing that happens mm -hmm. when, when we share those problems and not some explosive uh, interaction. Mm -hmm. I think that, that when, <laughs> I think in some of the more, more contentious periods of, of my work in the industry, people struggle the most when they're, they're dealing with a manager or dealing with a leader who has two personalities. One personality is happy-go-lucky and easy to please, and the other half of that person is explosive and caustic. Kind of and, a Jekyll and Hyde yeah, situation. absolutely. And many times there is a medical component to it. Mm -hmm. But whenever you bring a problem or, or an issue to that person, you don't know who you're going to get. Yep. You don't. You're, it's just a roll of the die, and you don't have the ability to predict it. So mm -hmm. you become afraid, and you're less likely to want to share that information. Even though 50% of the time they're great. Yep. So making sure that you stay consistent in terms of running the team and our methods of communication is critical. Making sure that we have consistent check-ins morning, per week, per month, and all of those things should be routine and regimented. Welcome to The Critical Path with Mary and Jason, a podcast about business development, company culture, and loving the place you work just a little bit more. This is episode 28, and we are going to be talking about running a team. So this month, we're talking all month about leadership. It's Leadership Month. It's National Leadership Month. It's not, I don't think. I mean, At, at Arcade, it is. At Arcade, it is National leadership. <laughs> national. It's observed nationally. So you're going to want to strap your jetpacks on for this one. It's all arcade wayfinding locations, coast to coast. It's true. Internationally. <laughs> across the globe. So we are talking this month about leadership. So in previous episodes here recently, we've talked about recruiting and hiring and interviewing and uh building a team, how are, how are you building a team and, and what is the thought process being used there? And now this episode, what we're gonna be talking about is how do you run an effective team? Yep. Something that a lot of folks could use a little tune up on or just looking for some additional insight on. Um, but there are a handful of fundamental pieces to active leadership uh, that come into play when you're running a team. Yep, absolutely, they say that knowing how to do a thing and knowing how to teach a thing are two completely different things. Mm -hmm. Just because you know how to do long division does not mean you are prepared to teach a fifth grader long division. Any parent can tell you that. A great carpenter is not necessarily a great foreman. So in the same way, knowing how to do the work is not the same thing as knowing how to lead a team as they do that work. Knowing how to do the work is critically important. It is. Because we are on an island and we're stuck if we don't have any folks who know how to do the work. In the same way that you can't teach a thing if you don't know the thing. Mm -hmm. Knowing the thing isn't enough to be able to teach the thing. Mm -hmm. But trying to teach long division to someone when you don't know how to do long division is impossible. Right. And in the same way, being an effective leader of a team, if you don't understand the work that they're doing, is not really possible. We had. Uh, someone in one of our classes that wanted to argue with us that uh, you don't need to understand your trade 
in order to lead the team. As long as you understand people, you don't need to be able to understand the trade at all. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. It is a crazy thing. Mm -hmm. You need to understand your trade. That's super important. But we're gonna assume that you got into this role, you're put in a leadership role, we're gonna assume that you do understand that trade. So I graduated from Purdue with construction management and um, a prerequisite for graduation was that you had to spend six months in the field. Mm-hmm. If and, and I think that, that was that's something that I've carried with me forever, that if you don't understand firsthand the work that you're managing, you are at a disadvantage when you're managing your team. It's important that not only do you understand the struggles that they're going through, but you understand firsthand how to correct the work, how to do the work. You don't have to be an expert at all of it, mm-hmm. but you have to have a fundamental understanding of what it is that, that we do here. Absolutely. How so, can you tell if they're doing a good job or not if you don't understand the work? So the first step when we're talking about actually running a team successfully is creating some sort of bond, some sort of common language, some sort of togetherness. There needs to be an us. Mm-hmm. And if it's not us, then it's always going to be uh, us versus them. It's going to it's be, me, be versus me versus you. Versus you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Early on in my career, I had negotiated, uh, so I was a project manager and I negotiated a project bonus. There was a project bonus structure that I had secured for my project team. And we sat down uh, with the ownership of the company. We said, if we deliver this project with this profit margin, this is the bonus that we're looking to take home personally. And we built the whole structure for it so they didn't have to do any of the work. And the response from from the company ownership was, yes, we're fine with that. And the way we're going to allocate it is project management, you get 50% of the take. Superintendent, you get 35% of the take. Uh, Engineer, you get 15% of the take, right? And when you think about fundamentally what that does to the team and to the sense of us, if I would have accepted that, it would have torn the team to pieces. Well, because it says that those people are worth less than you are. Right, and and my philosophy is, is a little communistic in terms of uh, running a team and running a business is that we all have important roles to play. Everyone on the team is important and therefore my response in that case was, I want to split my share evenly mm-hmm. because if we succeed on this project, it's because we all put in. It's yep. because we all contributed, we all showed up. Being a great leader does you zero good to getting a building built when you have no team to build the building. Mm-hmm. So team building is kind of the first stop in in our journey of running a, a successful team. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of different team building options that are out there, but essentially you're looking for something that uh, creates a sense of, of team, a sense of group togetherness. Uh, it can be something as simple as you know go-kart racing or off-roading or mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a barbecue. It could be having a beer at a pub. It mm-hmm. could be having a barbecue at your house. There are a lot of elements that go into planning team building, and we're actually going to be talking about that for a whole episode in a couple of weeks here. Mm-hmm. But the main part, the most important part, is that we're finding common ground. Mm-hmm. We're putting everyone on common ground and doing something that we enjoy doing. I believe at my core, 95% of the world's problems could be solved if you could reduce it to two people sitting at bar stools, yep. right? Two people sharing a pint, two people sharing a sandwich, 
breaking bread together, if you can get to that level of, of commonality, then you're going to be able to solve every problem in front of you. Yep. So team building is critical before we start rolling. So we start, let's say we hire a bunch of new folks. We need to put some energy and some effort in to build that commonality. Or we start a new project with a team of people who have all been at the company for a long time. And we assume, well, everyone knows one another. They're all, they're all acquainted, mm -hmm. so I don't need to worry about team building. But the truth is, unless this team came directly from another project together, just because they know one another doesn't mean that they have worked with this team dynamic. So it's important to understand that every team within your organization is a unique thing and needs to be uh, needs to be dealt with accordingly. So, assuming we're starting a new project or a new initiative, it's important that we sit down and actually define what the success is. What what are the success metrics for this project? Is it for the project or for the company as a whole? What, how do we define success? Have we actually given them uh, goalposts that they're aiming for? Or have we just said, go out there and do your best? We talk a lot about games. And the truth is, this is like playing a game when you have no win conditions. If you sit down to play Monopoly, then you know how you win Monopoly, even if you never win Monopoly like me. You still know what would have to happen in order for you to win that game. And often in construction and in business, we go out and we're told to do a good job, to succeed, and no one ever tells us what those win conditions are. Have we actually defined as a company, as a project team, what we're trying to do specifically? And I think it's important to talk about this because some of the time we don't have win conditions because as a company, we just haven't thought about it. We mm -hmm. haven't gotten our heads around what constitutes as a successful project, but sometimes we do know that as a company and we don't want to share that with the team because we feel like if we tell them what constitutes as a win, if we give them goalposts, then they won't want to do better than that. Mm -hmm. Then they'll just do the, they'll cap the bare minimum yeah. and they'll, they'll call it a day. And I think to have that attitude is a, a substantial mistrust of your employees. Mm -hmm. It's to assume that no one, no one cares about doing a better job than they have to. And if that's true, we have built the wrong company. Yeah. We have built the wrong culture. We need to build a better game. And when we're, when we're starting off in the project, and we do this in project coaching, when we're helping contractors learn how to run successful projects, uh, we define everyone's role. So what are the roles and what are the responsibilities? We'll establish a responsibility matrix for all of the team members so that we have clear roles of leadership and clear definitions of support so that everybody understands which position we're playing. Sometimes we'll start projects and we haven't really defined who's doing what. So maybe you have the title superintendent, but what does that mean? That's going to mean 10 different things to 10 different people. And I think sometimes too, we define these roles and we write it all down on paper and we put it away in a drawer somewhere we and then it. we just move forward. Yeah. We say that got defined. It's it's there. You got it when you hired in, you know. And it, it went, it was delivered to your email and maybe you opened it once, mm -hmm. glanced at it for 30 seconds and never looked at it again. And I think it's important when we're running a team that we make those role definitions a living document, that we make that something that we interact with on a regular basis and talk about and pay attention to. Because if it's something that sits in a drawer somewhere, then we aren't gonna be using it. And if we aren't using it, then it's not real. Mm -hmm. I think we see all the time places where 
someone in leadership at the company says, look, I made this definition and I gave it to them. They know that's what they need to be doing. And then when you go and look in the field, some of those things have never been really clearly communicated beyond being on that piece of paper. Some of those things, they're not even really letting that person do. So if we don't make our role description something that's a living document, then we may as well crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. So for the project success, we should define metrics. Mm -hmm. What are the specific deliverables that, that we're tracking? Uh, what are the elements of risk? We should be thinking about that. How many dollars or what kind of profit margin are we looking for? Is this gross margin? Is this net margin? Uh, what about our labor budgets? Have we defined what our labor targets are and have we communicated that to the people in the field? They're the only ones who have the ability to control or influence how we're spending those hours. So it's important that we give them visibility of what, what metrics we're targeting. Mm -hmm. And this is another place where we often look at it like if we tell them that, then they'll spend all of that time mm -hmm. because why not? Right. And again, that is that is mistrusting our people that they don't want to do a better job. And it means we haven't necessarily created any motivation for them to do a better job. We could also define target metrics like number of daily reports and number of weekly reports and number of RFIs that we want to submit mm -hmm. so that these are our targets that uh, that we have the ability to track. And then when we track those, then we have the ability to see how did that change the outcome? Mm -hmm. So if we run projects even as subcontractors and send in zero RFIs, requests for information documents, that will have a negative impact on our profitability on the project. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we understand the right things to track and we spend time and energy tracking those, we'll see how that affects the outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think when we talk about metrics, and metrics is a very big subject that we could talk about for a long time, that could be an episode too. You could have a whole podcast about we metrics. Really, yeah. Uh, but what you want to think about is you don't have to actually physically have this, although it'd be great if you did. Think about like a dashboard in front of you. If you could look at a dashboard and see all of these things, these should all be things that are measurable. You don't want a dashboard in front of you that says, are people doing their best? Because that's not they're, a meaningful graph. They're doing happy. Right. Or not happy. Right. Right. Whereas all of the things that we're talking about when we talk about metrics, about profitability and about labor hours and about budgets, all of this is stuff that you really could put in front of you on one dashboard and be able to see everything you need to know about that project in one glance. Mm -hmm. So it's important when we're running a team that we deliver consistent leadership, that, that the behavior that we're exhibiting, the type of leadership that we're sharing and showing are consistent for the, the purpose of our team should know exactly what to expect. Mm -hmm. There should not be surprises. They should understand if I have a problem and I bring it to you, this is exactly what's going to happen. And hopefully it's a good thing that happens mm -hmm. when, when we share those problems and not some explosive uh, interaction. Mm -hmm. I think that, that when, <laughs> I think in some of the more, more contentious periods of, of my work in the industry, people struggle the most when they're, they're dealing with a manager or dealing with a leader who has two personalities. Mm -hmm. One personality is happy-go-lucky and, and easy to please, and the other half of that person is explosive and caustic. Kind of and, a Jekyll and Hyde yeah, situation. absolutely, and many times there is a medical component to it. Mm -hmm. But whenever you bring a problem or, or an issue to that person, you don't know who you're gonna get. Yep. You don't, you're, it's just a roll of the die, and 
you don't have the ability to predict it. So mm-hmm. you become afraid and you're less likely to want to share that information, mm-hmm. even though 50% of the time they're great. Yep. So making sure that you stay consistent in terms of running the team and the, our methods of communication is critical. Making sure that we have consistent check-ins in the morning, per week, mm-hmm. per month, and all of those things should be routine and regimented. And again, it's just thinking about that that dashboard conversation, that if all of this information that's coming in from your people, if, if that were a, an actual dashboard and you literally never looked at that dashboard, then how much good would it do you? So you need to make sure that not only that things tag back to a number, that we can measure it, that we do measure it, and then on top of that, that we're actually paying attention to those measurements and taking action as a result. So after we've crafted the direction of our team and we have our our project charter, we've set goals and metrics and defined roles and responsibilities, um, it's important that when we give people responsibilities that that they need to take on, that we do our best to stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. I think we need to, as a leader, define for ourselves where those mileposts are that if things get out of hand to a certain point, if uh, the labor hours are getting out of hand to a certain point, whatever that looks like, there's a line in the sand that this is where I will step in mm-hmm. and help get things back on track. And until we hit that point, I'm not going to step in because it's important that we give people a little room. We can't the first sign that things are going poorly, just step in and take it away because then they never learn how to solve their own problems. And then we come to a place where we go, as a leader, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overworked, because all I do all day long is watch what everyone's doing and solve everyone's problems, because they can't solve them for themselves. And if we don't let them solve them, they're never gonna learn how to solve them. We need to let them grow into their own agency. It's okay if when we're teaching our kids how to wash dishes, they're gonna break some dishes and that's okay. We need to not rush in and take that job away from them and call them incompetent and stupid. Mm -hmm. It's important that they have the tools and the resources to figure out how to clean it up for themselves. That being said, the first time they break a dish, you certainly don't stand in the other room and say, I don't know, you figure out how to clean it up, Mm -hmm. right? You go in, you show them how to use the broom, how to use the dustpan, how to not cut themselves, how to make sure that they got everything actually stand there and make sure that they got everything and then by the time we get to the second or the third broken dish you can call in from the other room and say you know how to do this Mm -hmm. you know how to fix this Mm -hmm. fix it so i think that's a really important skill for being a leader is understanding how to be present without being overbearing Mm -hmm. how to be there enough that they aren't just on their own with everything they ever need to fix and also how to not be so absent that everything gets so out of hand that your whole project is tanking and you didn't know it because that's a problem. You need to understand how do you keep your keep your finger on these things enough that you know when you're needed, but not so much that your people can't grow and learn to solve their own problems and feel like they have the space to solve their own problems. <clears throat> so another generational piece that we, we see come into play more and more as time goes by is the idea of feedback. So as we're going through the course of our project and we're doing our work and we're we're leading our teams, people want more feedback than they ever have before. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a a really fundamental piece to to the why of that. And if we think about the Facebook and we think about uh, Friendster, 
Think about Friendster. <laughs> Friendster's think not a thing anymore. It totally is. But you I'm know what? MySpace it. is still a thing. MySpace, wow. Uh, if we think about Instagram, uh, how many likes, how many interactions, how many views, how many mm -hmm. followers, mm -hmm. even even the, the feedback that's not great, people want to hear that. People want mm -hmm. the feedback and they want to understand whether or not they're on the right track. Mm -hmm. So the expectation now is, let's say the older generation, you would only get feedback typically, oftentimes, when you did something wrong. Mm -hmm. So when you have millennials and what's the next generation? Uh, you know, I think our daughter's calling it Generation Z. Okay, whatever that is. So uh, the, the newer generations that are coming into the workplace and they are occupying a larger and larger portion of the work performed, they want feedback. They want real-time feedback. They don't mm -hmm. want feedback once per year about three things they did wrong. Mm -hmm. They want daily feedback on how things how are going. Doing. Yeah, and when we don't provide that to them, then they feel a sense of isolation and mm -hmm. they feel like there's something wrong. So when you think about the age of the internet and you know like talking about the social media but in general everything we have this constant flow of information of all kinds just constantly um, flowing into our brains and so when people go to work and they don't have that flow of information they don't know how they're doing it's this deafening silence and it's an uncomfortable place to be. And then they feel like they don't have the ability to improve because they can't measure how they're doing. Mm -hmm. So when things go wrong and they will and they do, and, and I think it's important to realize that if we don't make mistakes and if we don't break things, we don't learn. Absolutely. So early on in my adulthood, my junior adulthood, I used to, to break everything. <laughs> everything I would touch, I would break. So, uh, this something. is the situation where, like, when he would go to his cousin's house, mm -hmm. then they would, like, put all the toys away. Oh, yeah, because they knew I was coming. <laughs> Don't let them play with your yeah. new transformer. But even, like, 19 through 26, oh, I yeah. would, I would oh, take yeah. things apart. I would try to figure out how they worked. And typically, they'd end up broken and, and beyond repair. Right. And There's a rental property that comes to mind that we lived in where uh, he actually had a, a what a hand the circular saw what circular he, saw the circular saw yeah. and he was cutting something and then picked it up off the blocks to realize he had cut a line right through the middle of our carpet. Yeah, who knew cutting <laughs> cutting wood in your living room was a bad idea on carpet. I had to live with that until we moved out yeah. when you had to get it fixed. Yeah, uh, but things are going to get broken. That's okay. But it's important that we, we recognize that things will get broken, but the more important part is how do we react to it? How do we clean it up and how do we fix it? And did we learn from it or not? So when things go wrong, you, you can have a culture where people will just point fingers and shift blame mm -hmm. and politics. Whose fault is it? That's right. Who, who's gonna, who are we gonna set this up for to, yep. to fall? Who has to pay for this one? Mm -hmm. And it's more important that we investigate what happened. So, the, the analogy that I use is, and I can't remember if I've shared it on the podcast yet or not, but if we make a mistake at work, think about if this were a fatality. Think about if this were a construction fatality, not just a minor mistake. But you know, losing $50,000, that's not a minor mistake. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you make a construction error, that's, that's pretty reasonable that you could get to that number. So if we pretend like it's a fatality, we don't just start pointing fingers. 
the first thing that we do is we investigate. Mm -hmm. So we bring in L&I, we bring in uh, safety professionals, we bring in attorneys and insurance folks, and, mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully we're keeping the press at bay, and we bring in company mm -hmm. leadership, and we investigate what happened to lead to this outcome. Mm -hmm. So we put a fair amount of energy into that process. And this isn't one day or one hour, mm -hmm. right? When we are talking about a real fatality, mm -hmm. they come in and it takes months yeah. to get to the bottom of all of this information. They wanna know everything about what happened. So we tear everything apart and understand it backwards and forwards. And then the second step after we've performed the investigation is we define what are the steps that we need to take what are the changes we need to make to prevent this from happening again? Mm -hmm. Because if we don't take that critical step of defining how do we protect against it, then we know that it's just going to happen again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So once we've investigated and then we define that step to prevent a recurrence, then we have to allocate responsibility. So if something went wrong and it turns out after the investigation uh, that someone actually did wrong, mm -hmm. then we can allocate that responsibility. But we can't even think about pointing the finger. We can't even think about allocating responsibility until we complete those first two steps. Well, and we're looking at this from a legal standpoint, and it's important too to have the conversation that there's a difference between someone made a mistake and someone did wrong. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it really was a mistake. Sometimes it was a missing process and somebody could have paid closer attention, but they didn't. Uh, other times people did something that was egregiously wrong. They ignored a step they were supposed to take. Because I think too, when we go back to a mistake that happened at work, mm -hmm. just because we know whose fault it was, that doesn't mean that they did something wrong. Yeah. Just because we know who we can now pin this on, there's also a difference between someone who- Did they do it on purpose? Ignored a step because they didn't care mm -hmm. versus someone who wasn't properly trained or educated mm -hmm. on that step. Or managed, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think there's even something unique to the phrase allocate responsibility. Mm -hmm. There's something to the words that, that we're using there that, that is unique and special. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't allocate responsibility if you're pointing the finger. Mm -hmm. You don't blame somebody. You don't you don't throw shade or hate at people. You mm -hmm. don't just blindly in a, in a rage fire them. Mm -hmm. If you're allocating responsibility, there's a certain amount of thoughtfulness that's going into it. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the allocation of that responsibility is doing it by itself. This mm -hmm. is what needs to happen mm -hmm. because of our investigation and because of the steps that we've we put together, uh, the changes that we need to make. Mm -hmm. It could be that the person needs to go, mm -hmm. but I think we should never jump to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. When we were first getting our feet into the Seattle construction industry, it was shortly after we got involved here and situated here, that uh, a crane came down mm -hmm. and people died. I was, if we would have got here two weeks earlier, I would have been on that project. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, uh, I learned recently after another crane recently came down that the laws in the city changed. The laws in the state changed. The laws in the state changed mm -hmm. after that happened. The first time that the one, well, and that was not, not the, the first, first time yeah. that a crane had ever fallen. Yeah. But when that incident happened since two thousand six, yeah, two thousand six in Bellevue, that that crane came down, mm -hmm. and the laws in the state of Washington. There were several new laws mm -hmm. that came into place to try to keep that thing from ever happening again. Yeah. So in the same way that 
a fatality happens and new laws get enacted. It's not just that we say, well, next time we'll try harder. Next time we'll do different. We changed our state. We changed the way things are done. And in the same way, if it's a big enough problem, a big enough mistake at our company, we need to make sure we're changing our internal laws to make sure this doesn't happen again. So in the words of uh, Mark Mann, a mentor of mine, some know him as Mark, some know him as Marcus, depending on what era you you met him in, uh, he had a, a saying that was, don't forget to catch people in the act of doing things right. I didn't know that came from him. Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> catch them in the act of doing something right. Yep. And there's a spirit there that, that always resonated with me for the, the reason that the common wisdom is we need to try to catch people doing something wrong and we need mm-hmm. to catch them in the act so that we can uh, catch them red-handed and punish them mm-hmm. appropriately. But there's seldom the same level of focus in trying to catch people in the act of doing things right. Mm-hmm. What does that world look like if we're catching people in the act and doing it and congratulating them and telling them thank you? Mm-hmm. So as a commercial PM, I'd walk around with pockets of Starbucks cards mm-hmm. and I would catch people in the act of, of performing their work safely. Mm-hmm. I would catch them in the act of, of doing something right or being kind to one another mm-hmm. and make a big stinking deal out of it. And so if you think about how that changes the dynamic of the team and how that changes the, the feeling of, of the relationship we have with people in leadership, mm-hmm. it's a total paradigm shift from the idea and the era of we need to catch them doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To go all the way back to when I was in elementary school, uh, I went to kind of a hippie elementary school and they had a program where the main office, there were a bunch of stupid cheap toys and there would be toys in the window every Monday when you got to school, there were toys in the window. And on Friday, there would be a drawing and they would give away all those stupid toys. Is this the eraser story? This is not the eraser story, it's a different story. So there would be the toys in the window and throughout the week, if a teacher or a teacher's aide, if basically any adult or even like hall monitors sometimes had the power to give these away, I was a hall monitor. Of course you were, nerd. <laughs> there were tickets and Anytime anyone saw you doing anything good, you got a ticket. So, you know, that's a pretty standard thing to do in school. But the thing about it that was meaningful was they gave these awards away every week. Everybody always cared about what was in there, right? That was the conversation. Oh, did you see there's a transformer in there this week, right? It was a cool thing. It was a cool thing. But the thing that always I go back to when I tell this story is the idea that there were a lot of ways you could get these tickets and being nice to people was one of them, but the easiest one was to pick up a piece of garbage in the hallway. If someone ever saw you pick up a piece of garbage that no one directed you to pick up, that was an easy ticket. Yeah. And you were very likely to be awarded a ticket if the hallway was busy and you picked up a piece of garbage. It was a high percentage of time that someone would notice you doing so this. So you had like metrics for this then? You had like a dashboard well, of so, the easiest way to get tickets. Oh, uh, well, yes, I did, for sure. <laughs> For sure, I I actually, I want a lot. So when you would see, and it wasn't just me though, anyone, anyone who would see a piece of garbage in the hallway, there was a value to that, right? Basically it's like seeing a dollar on the floor. Mm -hmm. Every time you saw a piece of garbage, people would scramble for it. And like kids would drop things and other kids would (laughs) pick them up before they could get it themselves. Is is there like planting? like? planting trash on the floor? 
I mean, I suppose you could, but like if someone See, that was me. Oh. We didn't have that program. We didn't have that program, but that's totally that's what how I would work the system, right? Yeah. But the point is, this was something that everyone knew. Everyone understood it, that that garbage on the floor, that had a value. That was like, score, look at that. I found a piece of garbage, yes, right? right? And I always think of that because it was such a stupid, easy thing for them to do. Mm-hmm. And yet it generated this culture of people who were scrambling to pick up garbage off the floor. You never found like unattended garbage that just stayed on the floor. Um, and the way that people treated one another at that school, I moved around a lot as a kid. And that school, that area, and again, it was a hippie area, but still it was different than what I experienced later. And it's funny because I can remember um, moving to a new school after I left that school. And shortly after I had been there, uh, I didn't do so well socially there. And I said to someone who had been nice to me, and I said, why Why does everyone dislike me so much? And she, you know what she said? Hmm. She said, you're too nice. You say too many nice things to people. That's you right. have to stop giving people compliments. You know, and <laughs> it's this culture piece and conditioning piece. And this all feels like it's just stories about kids in school and yeah. not useful. But I feel like this has a lot to do with what we're doing every day. Oh, yeah. An environment where you say to somebody, I like your jacket, mm-hmm. because this was when she said, you, you give people too many compliments. You told so-and-so you liked your hair. You told so-and-so you liked your jacket. Nobody trusts you anymore. Right. And, and they're thinking, why would they say that to me? What does right? she want? Why, yeah. What are you trying to do? What is she trying to do? Mm-hmm. So I think in the same way, whenever we can think about it like that, the, the amount of money that that school put into that ticket program it could not have been much. Yeah. When you look at schools and things they do to try to make the world a better place, the money to buy some toys and and give away tickets, it wasn't much. It's a super high return on investment. But it changed the world. Mm-hmm. It changed the world. And I mean, what here I am today mm-hmm. doing what I'm doing today because it changed the world. And when you can change the world in that way at your company, it doesn't just change the work that you do and the quality of your teams, it changes the world for everyone who works there and everyone who works with you. And we don't grow up, we just get bigger. Mm-hmm. And those simple motivators still work for adults and for teams and for big burly construction folks. Mm-hmm. It's just that we need to change the game a little bit to fit that. We need to change the, the prize that we're giving. Maybe they're less interested in Transformers. I don't know, maybe that would motivate them. I don't them. know, I mean, Transformers are still pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, but it's important that we catch them in the act of doing something right. Uh, and so those are the fundamental pieces of, of leading that uh, successful team, running the team in a way that's predictable, in a way that's positive, in a way that encourages cooperation and uh, autonomy. All of those parts and pieces are critical to running a successful team. So Absolutely. what else? We didn't really have a, a jetpack, but I feel like we could come up with one in our, our upcoming announcements here as we close out. Yeah, we could. Or, you know, you could do like uh, transformer tickets or something. <laughs> okay, so coming up next on deck here at Arcade, what yeah. do we have going on? Well, so we will be, I, I guess we've been dropping hints about our leadership cohort. It's going to be called Jetpack Cohort. That's the first time that's been said to anyone outside of this office. Shh. 
So now you guys heard it first. Now you know. So Jetpack Cohort, uh, it's going to be a 12-month program where we are spending time with hand-selected folks over the course of the year to review uh, real-time lessons about how to be a better leader. This is going to be a group that is made up of uh, some owners and leaders of small companies, but also uh, people who are rising up through the ranks. So we're going to try to have kind of a broad array of people at different positions in leadership. Yeah. And so one meeting per month, we'll be covering that leadership topic and we're going to be playing games and interacting in ways that are a little bit different mm-hmm. uh, than other leadership programs. And those those sessions, the kind of class sessions, we're going to be keying into our seven values of leadership program, which we're going to actually be talking about next week here on the podcast. Yeah. And the second meeting of every month is going to be intended to let everybody bring their real-time problems to the group. Mm-hmm. And we'll sit down and we'll have a roundtable discussion about active issues that they're experiencing and help the team help our our Jetpack cohort solve those problems using collaboration and we're really going to be uh, defining a new type of relationship with everybody who is a part of that cohort and not just the first year but every year going on from that point forward. Yeah, I would love to have this be something that carries on year after year Mm -hmm. where we could have, uh, you know, and we talked about having a party Mm -hmm. at the beginning to kind of get the whole cohort together and get everybody Uh, on the same page. I would love to move forward and have that party be uh, all of our alumni invited to the party so that all of the new incoming cohort could meet people who have done this before and kind of learn what the value of this program is. So we're really excited about it. It's really kind of a legacy piece. It's something that uh, we are really doing because it's a passion project for us and we're really looking forward to it. So if that's something that you are interested in, or that you know someone who might be interested in, by all means, let us know. We're building that group now. Yeah, and so one of the the key concepts of it will be that we use the term jetpack in our podcast Mm -hmm. and use the term jetpack uh, to mean this is kind of your energy. This is kind of the force that pushes you forward. It's that takeoff point. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, the the angle that we take is that your relationships are your jetpack. If you don't focus on building your relationships and refining and treating people with kindness and respect and leaning into those people at at points of weakness and letting them know when you need help, uh, you're definitely underserved. And so a big part of the Jetpack cohort is the idea that we're building those relationships so that you can take those with you into the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Jetpack cohort. Jetpack cohort. Is that the Jetpack? Is that the Jetpack? It's a little meta. I don't know. It's meta, but it it doesn't seem like... Like it's quite, uh, mm-hmm. quite silly enough. Yeah. Jetpack cohort is, you know, all business. All business. It is. So we have team building to talk about if you want to. Yeah. yeah. So also upcoming, we're always focusing on something different, different times a year. Every so often we sit down and kind of look internally and decide what do we want to do mm-hmm. over the next few months. And uh, summertime is a great time to lean into team building. So we'll be spending a whole episode talking about different uh, forms and, and purposes of team building in, in a couple of weeks. What goes into setting up a good team building session. Mm-hmm. But if you need help in the meantime and you need some support right now, you don't have time to wait for the end of summer, then feel free to reach out. We have uh, lots of options that we can help support. Yeah, absolutely. We help people do their their 
summer picnics, mm -hmm. summer kind of company picnic Take events. your daughters and sons to work day. We do. Leadership um, retreats. It's never too soon to start thinking about the holidays. Mm -hmm. I know nobody wants to think about those right now, but... Murder mystery parties. We Yeah, we do a lot of fun uh, holiday party things. Yeah. And we do just general team building. If you have a new project team and they're getting ready to kick off a new project, it's a great time to send them to do... Uh, we have a lot of internal things we do, like we have VR team building and different fun things that we do here uh, at our office, but we also do external events. We do, uh, we're looking into right now a, a company that does like blacksmithing. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we, it's not a thing we've done yet, but we're, we're gonna go vet that and see how it works and uh, doing or escape room places where yeah. you can go. Lots of different options, lots of fun stuff. Yeah, good stuff coming. Yeah. So the Jetpack is, is Wait for it. Hall monitor Mary. <laughs> Mary's a nerd .com. Hall monitor Mary is pretty good. <laughs> you like that? You know, and like, you can make pictures of nerdy little kids, yeah. right? With like whatever nerdy looking kid you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And everyone could post pictures of that. And then if I went in and posted a picture of my actual self in that era, it Oof. would put all the rest to shame. <laughs> it's true. All the rest it's to true. shame. You have all the toys and tickets and erasers. It's true. Hall monitor Mary? Sure. And if, if we get three separate people mm -hmm. to post anything on the forum about Hall Monitor Mary, <laughs> I will post the picture. Ooh. I will post the picture. You know what though is the, the real tragedy? The real tragedy? I had like a little like... Little apron, So little it was vest. called a safety belt, but yeah. it was like a, it went over your shoulders. It was like a little safety harness thing. Yeah. And it was bright orange and I had it and I have no pictures of me in it, which is a real travesty. We could Photoshop ourselves out of this problem. Could we? Yeah, I guess we could. Yeah. I guess we could. So if I get three separate posts on the <laughs> forum from three different people referencing Home Monitor Mary. This is on Jarrett's and Jarrett's. Jarrett's and Jarrett's. And it's a little weird to spell. So you can find the link. Every episode <laughs> now has the link. Go to the link. Go to the forum. If you don't already have an account, create one. I know we've got some accounts that have been created, but nobody really posting just yet. Even if you don't know what to say, just post Hall Monitor Mary. That's it. Easy. Easy. Tell your friends, because you right. gotta get three if you wanna see the picture. Okay. We out of here? You can find us on on www.thecriticalpathwithmaryandjason.com. You can find us on uh, Transformers. Transformer Are tickets? Us. Transformer <laughs> tickets. Not yet. Not we yet. should do that. What? Transformer tickets. Yeah, so we should have a shelf mm -hmm. with like stupid stuff on it. And then like instead of throwing M&Ms at people because they don't like that as mm -hmm. much as they used to, you could you could take tickets to every M&M. And then the tickets go in a bucket mm -hmm. here at Arcade and you could say once a month or even once a quarter, depending on how often we're holding training, then we do drawings mm -hmm. and they get those stupid toys. Yeah. Look for it. Stupid toys. I'm actually, I'm putting it on the board right now. Stupid toy shelf. Stupid toy shelf. That could be a Jeff hat too. But Paul Monger Mary's good. Stupid toy shelf. She's actually writing it. I actually just wrote it. Okay. So stupid toy shelf. So you can find us on stupidtoyshelf.com. That's not a domain that exists as far as I know right now, yeah. but like 
leave it to Jason and he'll have it. In you can find us on Jetpack Cohort. You can find us on jetpackcohort.com, which is the new site that we're just rolling out with all the information about the cohort. Mm-hmm. You can find us. We just talked about Jarrett's and Jarrett's. There are way too many web addresses. Way too many. But if you go to www.arcadewayfinding.com, you can find everything. Everything. There. Everything from there. You can find us on Twitter at Arcade Wayfinder. You can find us on Instagram at Arcade Wayfinding. And you can find us on LinkedIn. Jason Sturgeon, Mary Sturgeon, Arcade Wayfinding. And also West Seattle Corporate Center. Yeah. check us out come and visit have a cup of coffee record a podcast with us so that's yeah. another thing we're actually we've been kind of looking for some guest podcasters mm-hmm. lately because you probably get a little tired of just hearing the sound of our voices right it's not as scary as it seems no it's a lot of fun and if you come in and do an episode with us then uh, we don't make you try to figure out what to talk about we'll just ask you questions and you can just hang out have some coffee have some coffee right we're out watch for outtakes watch for do you think, do you think it <laughs> do you think we have enough outtakes i feel like they're playing funny story uh when our teenage kids see pictures of me when i was a little kid it's it's jarring for them because my hair is not blue you're, you weren't born with There's, blue hair even though they watch me they watch me diet on mm-hmm. a regular basis mm-hmm. on some level they, their brains cannot process a mom with brown hair yeah. which I think is really funny it'd be weird if you came home with brown hair one day yeah they wouldn't like, know what, what to do they who, who are you who are you it's like when my dad shaved his mustache or like <laughs> you know went for a long period of time with no mustache and grew one it's like wow this is weird when i was a baby my dad shaved his whole beard off and mustache and my dad like he's kind of defined by his giant beard and mustache yeah. and when i was a baby he shaved it all off one day and i cried and i would not interact with him it was like i didn't know who he was until sure. he grew back right Funny. okay <laughs>